Deuteronomy chapter 16. Deuteronomy 16, the bulk of it, and we'll look tonight down as far as kind of verse 17. It actually almost seems that verse 18 through 21 probably fit together better with chapter 17. We'll see next time, so we'll just go down as far as verse 17 this evening and then uh, enter into a time of worship and share the Lord's Supper together. But this 16th chapter, we'll take notice, is basically a restatement, a reiteration of these three mandatory feast that at least the males among Israel were required to attend three times a year. In fact, if you look at verse 16 there in chapter 16, it almost gives you the summarization of what we'll be looking at in this chapter where it says there three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place in which he chooses at the feast of unleavened bread or often referred to as Passover as well. At the Feast of Weeks, often referred to as Pentecost also, and as well at the Feast of Tabernacles. So uh, basically those three feasts are sort of again described here. Again, Moses is restating things for the younger generation as they prepare to go into the promised land and take possession uh, of the the promised land that God has given to them. Uh, We have already looked obviously at these feasts together before. They're given to us in Exodus chapter 12. We saw them in Leviticus chapter 23 as well as in Numbers chapter 28 and 29. They've been described and now sort of in a summarized form again here uh, multiple times we find it and again here sort of one last time they're described uh, in this 16th chapter to the next generation reminding them that they were to observe these things and some of the brief details not extensive here uh, in regards to some of them so look with me there in the first verse of chapter 16 It says, observe the month of Abib, which uh, is often referred to as well in the scriptures as the month of Nizon as well. You'll see that referred to as well. That, as far as our calendar today, usually falls somewhere around the March-April time frame. So this would be the spring of the year. Uh, This particular uh, feast and festival, which is often referred to as, you see there, keep the Passover. Uh, And we'll see that Passover and unleavened bread, uh, basically a lot of times referred to synonymously you'll take notice when you get into the new testament sometimes it will be referred to as the feast of passover other times referred to the feast of unleavened bread the reason why for that again just by way of kind of putting that together in your minds is the passover was something that they would celebrate sort of as a day and then the very next day began the week-long feast of unleavened bread so because of that that one followed right on the heels of the other they're often referred to interchangeably as the feast of passover or the feast of unleavened bread but it's referring to the exact same thing when we see these things mentioned in the scripture and we'll see as they're tied together here so again in this was one of the three major feasts again there were seven or so different religious holidays or festivals that the jews were given to by god to celebrate but these three were required they were mandatory as verse 16 says especially for the male representative of each family 19 years and older they were required to attend so the first major feast that they were all required to attend was to celebrate the passover there in the spring of the year 
Keep the Passover to the Lord your God, for in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. And he says, therefore, you shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God from the flock and from the herd in the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name. Now, the Passover was first instituted in, in Exodus chapter 12, and there... Remember, they actually the first time celebrated Passover within their own households. Now we're told here going forward that from this point forward, they are to celebrate Passover in the place where the Lord would choose to put his name. Of course, initially, that would be wherever the tabernacle was, which ultimately would be in Shiloh when they get into the land. And then, of course, ultimately, it would be in Jerusalem where the physical permanent temple would be built and we'll talk more about that particularly in a moment but the passover feast as we've talked about before was basically the occasion where the jews commemorated or remembered god's deliverance of them out of the land of egypt for hundreds of years they had been in bondage in egypt as slaves under the harsh taskmasters of the egyptians ruling over them the people of god cried out to him for deliverance god raises up moses as a deliverer as a savior a type of christ moses comes he begins to speak to Pharaoh saying, God has said, let my people go. And of course, we then know that this series of plagues begins to take place as God brings these judgments against the Egyptians. The last of those plagues, remember, was the death of the firstborn when the death angel went through the camp and he would put to death all of the firstborn of Egypt, including Pharaoh's own son as a judgment of God against them for their rebellion. And God at that point told the Jews, his people, that what they were to do was that they were to take a lamb. And they were to take that lamb into their home. And if you remember, God told them to bring the lamb into their home. And for about four or so days, it was to be with them, living among them in their household. And then ultimately, a few days afterwards, about four or so days into it, they were then to sacrifice that lamb. And they were to apply the blood of that sacrificed lamb to the doorposts and the lentils of their home. Of course, you know, in a sense, looking at that, it pictures in some ways the cross. And God said, wherever the blood has been applied, and people are inside of that home trusting in the word of God and that blood that was applied for atonement that the wrath of God when the death angel came through the camp would pass over that household and the people would not fall under the judgment of God. And of course, uh, the Jews were instructed to do this. And as they did that, wherever the death angel saw the blood, he passed over and the wrath of God did not fall upon that household or those under that blood covering, if you would. And of course, as God took them out in this quick deliverance, then the next day they were ushered out quickly. They put no leaven into their bread. They left the next day in haste. And there was this great deliverance as God finally set them free from Egypt in this process and Passover was then instituted there in Exodus chapter 12 as God wanted them to remember this and there were multiple things involved in the celebration of Passover eating the bitter herbs and you know the the salt water and the you know different things like this that remind them of the tears that they shed and the bondage they were in and the bitter life of slavery but the pinnacle of it was this Passover lamb that this lamb was sacrificed as a reminder how it was that innocent lamb that died that allowed the wrath of God or the judgment of God to pass over them and to allow them to experience God's deliverance 
and in a sense salvation as the result of obeying God's word and following and trusting what God had asked them to do. So here, as they would do that, God is asking them to celebrate this. It became an annual feast in the springtime that they celebrated the Passover where they were to take a lamb without spot or blemish and they were to sacrifice that Passover lamb from their flock or herd in the place where God told them to. And it was a way for them to remember God's deliverance and what God had done for them. And again, keep in mind, as they would bring this little lamb into their household for a few days, uh, you know, it was almost, there was a part of it where, again, if you are an animal lover, I mean, there, it almost became like a pet, if you would. You brought it into your house for a few days. You began to develop a little bit of attachment to it. And then you had to put that innocent animal to death. And there was a part of that was intended to be a, a sense of grief and emotion and personal loss in the sense of that someone had to suffer, someone that had to, to die. There was this loss of life that was necessary for me to maintain my life. This innocent substitute had to die on my behalf. And God wanted that to be strongly impressed upon their minds and upon their hearts and even for the children as well that here little you know, Fido or Fifi, the lamb or whatever you'd call it, you know, because you know that's what happened. As soon as you bring the lamb into your house, it's like a stray dog or something. You know, the first day, little Jojo's naming it something or, and, and there it is. And then they have to take that lamb and they have to put it to death and they have to watch its blood be shed and realize that that is the only way that God can bring forgiveness and atonement for our souls and deliverance. And of course, all of these things, as we look at them, we begin to realize, as Colossians 2 says directly, these were all shadows and types that spoke of Christ. The substance, the fulfillment of these things is found in Jesus himself. And Jesus ultimately becomes our Passover lamb. Uh, it's because of his sacrifice life as the lamb of God. John says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so Christ is our Passover lamb. And as we trust in his sacrificed life as the lamb of God, it's his blood and our confidence in the blood of Christ that shed for us that allows the wrath of God to pass over our lives. And it's the death of Christ that gives to us that very thing. And that's why communion, even what we're about to share this evening, was something that Jesus instituted out of the Passover because of the incredible symbolism of what it represented. In a sense, Jesus was saying, listen, as you now celebrate this bread, and that was a part of it, the bread we'll see as we read on, this bread is my body, which is now broken for you. And, and this cup, which they drank multiple cups, one of them was, uh, was a cup of redemption. And I think that's probably the one Jesus referred to as he took one of those four cups as they celebrated the customary Passover feast. This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Not the blood of a lamb, but in my blood now, shed for the remission of sin. This is a new covenant. And, and of course, the beautiful symbolism of all those things. So this Passover, they're reminded to celebrate. Part of it, look, verse 3, notice, included then, connected to it, seven days of celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You had the day of Passover itself, and then right afterwards, it went right into seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's why it's often referred to interchangeably as the Feast of of Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He says, verse 3, you shall eat no unleavened bread with it. Uh, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread with it. That is the bread of affliction. He reminds them, for you came out of the land of Egypt in haste. Again, the idea there is they didn't have time, remember, to, 
do the typical process where they would use the leaven and the bread and wait for it to rise. They were taken out quickly, so they didn't put any leaven in their bread. So therefore, this was a reminder of that occasion. They ate no, no leavened bread for the seven-day uh, time. He says that you may remember, verse 3, that day in which you came out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. And again, coming out of the land of Egypt, coming out of Egypt. Egypt was a type of the world. It's a type of that old life in the world. And that's exactly what God has done for us. He's taken us out of Egypt, out of the life that we once lived in when we were a part of the world system before we came to know Jesus. He says, verse four, and no leaven shall be seen among you in all your territory for seven days. So there was this cleansing. They would go through the house and the children would participate in this process where they would cleanse all the leaven out of the house. It wasn't to be found anywhere in any of their ingredients, in any of their bread and so forth. He says, nor shall any of the meat which you sacrifice the first day at twilight remain overnight until the morning. So again, it had to be all consumed in one day the meat of the sacrifice and in some ways perhaps that was a reminder of how when you embrace Jesus you don't embrace part of Jesus you embrace all of Jesus completely Savior Lord in every way you know they weren't to leave any left over they were to consume everything all in the one day he says verse 5 and you may not sacrifice the Passover within any of your gates which the Lord your God gives you in other words they weren't to celebrate it in whatever town they lived in or wherever they felt like celebrating it. And I want you to notice now, I want to draw your attention here, pay attention to our reading in verses 6 and 7 and 8, this repetitious kind of reinforcement God keeps giving, we saw it first back in verse 2, about going to the place that God chose. He says, verse 5, don't celebrate the Passover just within your gates wherever you live, but, verse 6, at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. There you shall sacrifice the Passover at twilight, at the going down of the sun, at the time you came out of Egypt. And you shall roast it and eat it, again, verse 7, there it is, in the place which the Lord your God chooses. And in the morning you shall turn and go out to your tents. Six days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a sacred assembly to the Lord your God, and you shall do no work on it. So take note, verse 2, we have the mention, when you celebrate the Passover, do it in the place that the Lord your God chooses to put his name. Verse 6, they're again told, don't celebrate it wherever you want, but at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name by there is where you shall go and sacrifice and celebrate the Passover celebration. Verse 7, again, you shall not roast it except in the place which the Lord your God chooses. This is three of what we'll see are a half a dozen at least occasions in just these 17 verses where God continues to reinforce and to state, I want you to assemble at the place where I choose. I want you to go where my name is, where my presence is at, and to assemble together with the people. Again, I just want to bring to your attention because it's restated multiple times, and I don't think the Holy Spirit does it by accident, that these feasts were times of corporate and collective worship for God's people. They were occasions when the people of God were to 
assembled together. They were to leave their everyday activities. They were to depart from their fields and their responsibilities. And they were to discipline themselves as a commitment to go and to assemble together as God's people at the place of the tabernacle and ultimately the temple where the presence of God was manifested among them. There was this one place they came together to honor the Lord. And I think God is just indicating to the people by these repeated references of gathering to one place where he chooses the importance that it is a part of God's plan for his people to assemble together. This is very important because, look, I understand, and a lot of times we put an emphasis on, look, you need to have a personal relationship with the Lord. Yes, everybody needs to have a personal relationship with Jesus. We need to have a personal walk with the Lord, but we are also supposed to gather together as an assembly and be a part of the body of Christ. The Bible teaches both. Yes, we are individual members. Yes, we have an individual relationship with the Lord. But the Bible nowhere from Old Testament to New Testament teaches spiritual isolation where a person in a sense says, well, yeah, I'm a follower of God or I'm a Christian, but I don't need other followers of God or I don't need the other people of God. The Bible reiterates and emphasizes, here we see it was the custom among the congregation of Israel where three times a year it was mandatory they were required to assemble together. God wanted them to come together in that one location and to be together for a time period to worship the Lord, to be taught the word of God, to be encouraged and edified spiritually. And I think it was because God wanted to help people stay connected spiritually. There's something very fruitful, something very valuable when God's people come together and assemble together. And did it require a measure of discipline? Sure. Did it require a measure of commitment? Absolutely. But God wanted them to do this. And listen, this was God's pattern. This was God's purpose. It was God's intention. And so uh, they were to assemble. Well, I don't feel like going. Why can't I just do it here? And God said, no, I want you to go to the place I want you to assemble at my house together with other people and celebrate and worship the Lord together. And we see that with all three of these feasts, there's this reiterated emphasis to going to that place. And I think as God's people, we need to remember that. The Bible teaches the same in the New Testament, that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, that we are to come together, that we are living stones being built together to create a habitation for God's presence and God's spirit and that our lives are supposed to be interconnected. We're supposed to do this. We're supposed to assemble ourselves together to come out of the world and, and our, where God's sown us and we live our lives and assemble together for encouragement and unified corporate worship and gathering and focusing on God. It's an important essential for the people of God. It was for Israel. It is for us as well. And here the celebration of the Passover, as I said, was something God gave to them for you and I. We remember that Jesus is ultimately our Passover. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. He says this. He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you are truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So again, 
Paul, speaking of the Passover celebration, clearly saw through the lens of Christ in the New Testament, talking to the Corinthian church, saying, look, we don't keep feasts and festivals anymore as they did under the law because he says Christ fulfilled that for us. Christ is our Passover, so we come together to celebrate him. We come together to celebrate, as we're even going to do tonight, in communion, in the one, in a sense, corporate uh, you know, ordinance God's given to us as New Testament Christians to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And in a sense, as we celebrate communion, it's much like they, when they would celebrate Passover. We come together and we celebrate Jesus, our Passover lamb. And in the same way, they would not have any leaven among them. And leaven in the Bible is always a picture and a type of sin because it spreads and it spreads through putrefaction. As you would put some leaven into a lump, it would spread. It basically was taking a rotting piece of material and putting it into the lump and it would spread and the gases would be released and it would cause the bread to rise. And so leaven becomes a type of sin. And the Bible says in the same way Christ is our Passover, he says we should purge the leaven out of our lives. When we come together, our hearts should be to celebrate the Passover lamb Jesus and to want to drive out any leaven that's among us because a little bit of leaven, the Bible says, can leaven the whole lump. A little bit of undealt with sin can spread among us and have a detrimental effect because our sin affects one another. And so there should be this sense of one of the reasons I need to come together with you and worship with you is not just to celebrate Jesus together, but so that as the Spirit of God is working among us, that if there's sin in my life that I need to be convicted of or approved of or challenged about or helped with, that happens as we interact with each other. And as we hear the word of God and we fellowship together, it helps purge out of us any of that leavened stuff in our lives and to bring about instead sincerity spiritually so that we're not playing the hypocrite with one another and just doing church when we come together and, uh, and not being truthful with one another. So this beautiful celebration of Passover is ultimately a reflection of what we experience in Jesus and they would celebrate it as one of the mandatory feasts. The second of those three mandatory feasts is given to us then in verses 9 through 12. He says, you shall then count seven weeks for yourself and begin to count the seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the grain. That is, as you begin to harvest. So after the Feast of Unleavened Bread or the Feast of Passover ended, they then counted seven weeks, which would be 49 days. And then the next day, of course, would be the 50th day. And that's why this is often called the Feast of Pentecost that comes from Pentecost meaning 50 so 50 days after the feast of Passover was the feast of weeks or the feast of Pentecost you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with a tribute of a free will offering from your hand which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you so what they would do here is this was celebrated seven weeks or 50 days after Passover, which would put the Jews agriculturally then sort of at the start of the summer. This was, again, about two months time after the March-April time frame. So now you're at the beginning of the summer. And this was seven weeks into the harvesting period. So it's sort of the first fruits of the harvest are beginning to come in. And God said, this is a feast where I want you to celebrate my provision the first fruits of the greater provision that was to come and God's harvest. It was the beginning of a greater harvest that was to come. They were to come together and celebrate this and bring a portion of that as a free will offering according to how God had blessed them with their first fruits of that harvest that had come in. Verse 11, he says, you shall rejoice 
before the Lord your God. So notice this was to be a festive thing. It wasn't so much perhaps as somber as Passover. This was to be an occasion of joyfulness, of celebration. He says, rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite who's within your gates, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you. So again, everyone, God wanted all to participate in this. Notice there's our statement again. Here it is. At the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. Verse 12, and you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. So two exhortations given here regarding the feast of Pentecost. He says in verse 11, it was to be a time of rejoicing. And he says in verse 12, it was to be a time of remembering. So they were to rejoice in the Lord. They were to celebrate God. There was to be a joyfulness about it where they would, and they would you know, sing and customarily dance and celebrate as they had this festival for a week long as they came together. And it was a time when God says, I also want you to be reflecting. I want you to remember what I've done for you. And Pentecost, remember, was also sort of given in some ways in connection to the, to the giving of the law. Which is very interesting because we know ultimately in Acts chapter 2 what happens at the birth of the church. It says that it was on the day of Pentecost, the celebration of this very festival, that remember the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church and 3,000 souls were converted. Interesting, when the law was given, 3,000 people died. When the Holy Spirit was poured out, 3,000 people received new life through Christ. It's a picture of what the law does and what grace does. The law kills and destroys people and the grace of God gives life to people and awakens people to the goodness and the wonderful plan of God's forgiveness and love. And so Acts chapter 2, we see that it was on this very feast of Pentecost that after Jesus had ascended that the Holy Spirit who he promised was poured out and the church was birthed. Peter preached and thousands of souls were converted. And again, what were those souls? They were, if you would, the first fruits of the harvest of multitudes of souls that were to come into the kingdom of God. And even as Pentecost was the celebrating of the first part of the harvest, seven weeks into it, Pentecost ultimately in the New Testament became that first harvest, this sort of that fulfillment in Christ there of the first fruits of the many people who will come to Christ and experience his salvation. So Passover, the first feast, Pentecost was the second mandatory feast once a year. And then the third one that was required once a year was to attend the Feast of Tabernacles mentioned in verse 13. It says also, you shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days when you've gathered from your threshing floor and from your winepress and you shall rejoice in your feast. Again, notice these times of celebration and worship they weren't to be somber, you know, occasions where people, you know, were, you know, like stick in the mud. They were happy times. These were rejoicing occasions. Why? Because they had something to celebrate. It was the goodness of God. Whether it was God's provision in Pentecost or whether it was God's deliverance and salvation in Passover. And here in Tabernacles, Tabernacles was an occasion when they would celebrate God's presence and God's preservation 
as he had taken care of them and how he had shown his power to them throughout the time in the wilderness. So he says there, you shall rejoice in your feast. Again, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, and the Levite and stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates. Verse 15 again, seven days. So again, these were week-long religious vacations, if you would, or holidays. Not bad. Three times a year. You just took a vacation and you worship God for a week. I mean, it doesn't sound like a bad deal to me. You just took it, and it was God's requirement. You know, was it? Look, everybody, put down your plow, put down your sickle. Three times a year, and again, their vacation was in a sense scheduled for them by God. And he says, I want you to go and just be with the people of God and eat and worship. That doesn't sound bad to me. And they're eating meat, which sounds even better to me. You know, as they're celebrating these occasions, sacrifices and offerings. So rejoice, he says, seven days, verse 15. You shall keep a sacred feast to the Lord your God. Here it is again. See it, verse 15. In the place which the Lord chooses because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce, in all the work of your hands so that you shall surely rejoice. So again, he's saying to them here, God will now bless you in all your produce, in the work of your hands so that you'll surely rejoice. So tabernacles was to be a time where they celebrated the presence of God and his power and his preservation to keep them and to prosper them as a people. And God's saying, in the same way I did this for them in the wilderness for 40 years, when you go into the land, I'm going to do the same for you. And tabernacles was the time that they would celebrate that. The Feast of Tabernacles commemorated, we've talked about this before, basically God's taking care of them really well for the 40 years during the wilderness wandering. That's why it was often called the Feast of Booths. Because literally what they would do, and Orthodox Jews to this day will still celebrate this in this way, is they would, if they had a permanent structure, they would move outside and the family would live sort of in a little lean-to or you know, sort of a, 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 a simple shelter that would be built. And for seven days, they were supposed to sleep outside in a way where they could at least see through the thatched roof and see the stars. And it was a teaching occasion as well where the children would say, you know, Father, why are we sleeping outside for this whole week? Why, why can't we? And, and well, the reason why we're doing this, son, is because for 40 years, even though our fathers rebelled against God, and even though they did not obey what God wanted for them, and they, they, they chose to not trust God and enter into his blessing and his plan, Yet God graciously, for 40 years, sustained us as we walked through the wilderness. And our feet never swelled, and our garments never wore out, and God miraculously provided for us. For 40 years as we wandered through the wilderness, and he took care of us. And when we were thirsty, he brought water from rocks. And when we needed something to eat, he, he brought manna from heaven. And even as our fathers lived under the stars, we're out here to remember that God's presence is with us as God's presence was with them. And, and God will preserve us and God will prosper us and take care of us. So the Feast of Tabernacles was a way for them to celebrate and commemorate the goodness of God to them in that way and to teach and explain that to their kids. It was a way of being somewhat instructive as they would go through the process 
they would begin to understand those things as they would celebrate it in that way. You know, it's interesting, we ultimately find Jesus himself as a Jew observing these same feasts. Uh, We find Jesus celebrating the feasts in the Gospels. In fact, particularly regarding the Feast of Tabernacles, we read this in John chapter 7, which tells us that it was during the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles. It says this, that on the last day, the great day of the feast, as Jesus was there, the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John then adds the commentary, but this Jesus spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So in John chapter seven, Jesus attending as an obedient Jewish male, the Feast of Tabernacles, going up and celebrating it with the people of God. It tells us on that day, the last day, the great day of the feast, whereas they would symbolically each day as a part of the feast go down and gather water in these large vessels and they would come up to the temple area where the pavement stones were and they would pour out the water onto the pavement stones in some way symbolically reminding the people how God brought water from a rock to satisfy and quench their thirst in the wilderness. On the last day, they would go through this process and they would dump nothing out. It would be complete silence. On the other days, the water would come out, it would hit the pavement and people would celebrate and they would rejoice. On this last day, it was a solemn day They would do the same thing, but they would pour nothing out. They would just go through the process symbolically and everyone would just silently reflect. And picture, it's that last day, it's silent. And as the priest is doing that, Jesus stands forth in the middle of the crowd and declares these words. He cries out and says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. In the same way that water that came from the rock quench your thirst in the wilderness Jesus is saying I'm the rock of ages and my life will be struck and water and blood will pour forth from me and now the living water that will quench your inward thirst remember in John chapter 4 Jesus told the woman there at the well if you drink of this water physical water said you'll thirst again but whoever drinks of the water that I give will never thirst it will satisfy completely so Jesus pictures himself now as the one who can satisfy the deeper thirst, the spiritual thirst within all of us. And he says, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So Jesus was saying that the experience with the spirit of God through believing in and embracing Jesus is not only would our thirst be quenched internally, but ultimately through that experience, the ultimate experience is not just that we would experience our thirst being quenched, but that we would become like an overflowing river And the water of life, the spirit of God would begin to flow out of our life like the banks of a river overflowing at flood stage and that we would begin to quench the thirst of other people. And we would begin to offer living water to others as a representative of Jesus and how beautiful Jesus himself speaking of those very things symbolically at the feast of tabernacles that he attended. Verse 16 there says three times a year, there it is, All your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which we looked at, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. So again, mandatory attendance, it was required, it was obligated. 
And here we see, as I said, it was to help the people stay connected, I believe, spiritually to God, to stay connected to the ways of God. They were required to be there. It wasn't an optional thing. But I want you to notice particularly, because it's what the Bible shows us there, that this was required of all the males. Again, as the, the representative of the home, of the marriage, it was required. Now, it doesn't mean that the wives and the children and the families weren't allowed to attend. That was the ideal. God's heart was that everybody would attend. But it was required by Mosaic law that the males would be there in attendance. As the representative of their families, God said, if the wives can't make it, if the children can't make it, he says, the males are required to be there. As the spiritual representative of their home, God said three times a year, the males shall appear before the Lord. And again, notice, appear before the Lord, meaning that that's where the presence of God was. Appearing before the Lord almost sounds like maybe God was there you know, taking attendance. Great to see this person here, that person here, but uh, where's Mr. Johnson? Or how come he sent Mrs. Johnson and the kids, but he's out on the golf course? Where are the males? And again, we see this emphasis in the scripture of God putting this injunction, this onus upon the men in the families to be the spiritual leaders that God has called us to be. That this was important. Why? They were required to be there so that they would be in a right place spiritually. That they would be able to lead their family spiritually. They were to be there as the representative of their family. If the wife couldn't make it, if it was too hard to journey, if they had little ones, God said, okay. But for the spiritual stability of the family, dad needs to be there. Because he needs to be ministered to spiritually, be in the right place spiritually, so then he can continue as the high priest to lead his own family and to shepherd them spiritually and to help them spiritually. And so God put this Injunction, this requirement upon the males to be there three times a year. He says in verse 16, they shall appear, or excuse me, not appear before the Lord empty-handed. So when they went up to where the tabernacle or temple was, God says they weren't to appear there empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. So according to how they had prospered, whether it was Passover, whether it was Pentecost, coming with some of the first fruits of the harvest that God gave to them, whether it was tabernacles, according to the blessing God gave to them as they came during that fall harvest there at tabernacles, they weren't to come empty-handed. They were to come with something to offer to God as a way of blessing God in return for God blessing them. That's what he says there. Every man shall give as he's able. Notice there was no requirement. God didn't say, here's the standard. This is what you have to give. If you're spiritual, you have to. That's not what God was interested. God says, according to what you're able, according to how you've been blessed and prospered, the thing that God was putting upon the hearts of people as they would assemble for these times of worship is that they were to attend these times of worship with the perspective of giving of themselves. And I think what God was trying to teach his people, which I think is an important lesson for all of us, even as worshipers, is that God wants us to have the heart attitude of being a contributor and not a consumer. And listen, I'm not talking about just money. Instantly, that's where people's mind goes, oh, they can't come empty-handed. You better have some money in your hand. Listen, they, these people weren't even bringing money. They were bringing crops and grain and so on and so forth. That, that's not the issue. Our minds instantly go to money. And not that I think that money is not a part of our worship of the Lord. 
But the idea is a heart perspective. God's saying, look, I've blessed you. I've blessed you in so many ways. You have been blessed and poured into. So God says, when you come up and you assemble with all your brothers and sisters and you come together at the place where the Lord your God chooses and you're there, he says, come with a heart wanting to be a giver, not a getter, not a taker, but someone who says, how can I contribute? How can I bless someone else here? How can I bless God? Maybe I can, maybe I can give some counsel to somebody who needs counsel that's here in the temple precincts that seems kind of discouraged today. Maybe I can offer some prayer for this lady who seems rather downcast and I sensed it when I was there because I was worshiping God and maybe I can offer some prayer or maybe I can help in some way or serve. And again, that we as God's people would just have this heart of being contributors, givers like our God and not consumers and getters and takers. And I say that because our natural inclination is to be consumers. You, know, you listen to the way that we talk, even sometimes as Christians and people, you know, you'll talk to people on occasions maybe when they're looking for a new place to fellowship or worship and they kind of have this list like when they go to a place to, to see if they want to attend there and they, they, well, I, I need to see if they have everything that I need there. It's almost like the idea is that people come to a church with a consumer mentality. You know, well, I mean, do I want to shop there? I mean, is that like my favorite restaurant? And did I like the, the service and this and that? And again, I'm not saying there's, there's not a balance in that. But shouldn't the heart really be more, how can I go and bless people? How can I worship people? How can I do something to compliment or contribute among the people of God? to serve somehow or use my gifts rather than what can I get? I didn't get anything out of that church. I didn't get anything out of that church service. There's something about that that shows that we kind of have this consumer mentality rather than a contributor mentality. Listen, can I encourage you? I, I tell you this as a, as a Christian. Your level of joy, your level of joy and ultimate fulfillment in your worship and church life experience as a child of God will in many ways be directly related to that very thing. If your mentality is, ah, I, mean, I, don't, I, don't really, I don't really need to go to church because I'm feeling spiritually strong enough this week, or you know, I mean, I read my Bible on my own, or, or I don't really feel like, and, and your mentality is completely, if you don't need something, you don't go to church, or when you do come to a church service or a gathering, all you're looking for is to just get something and, and receive something, and you're never thinking about how can I be used of the Lord? How can I serve somebody, bless somebody, wash somebody's feet? You will find that many times you will be miserable and you will be empty and you will struggle. But if you have the mentality, even if I don't need something, maybe I should go to the meeting because maybe there's somebody else that needs to be encouraged tonight. And maybe I can bless somebody. Maybe I can listen to somebody that's having a really hard week. Maybe I can pray for somebody. Maybe God will want to use me in some way to speak a prophetic word or a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom or to offer prayer or to say, wow, I didn't realize that needed to be done and how can I serve so that maybe I can do this and somebody else. To, and if you come with the mentality of how can I serve people and serve God by blessing and loving and contributing, I tell you, you'll still be blessed you'll be doubly blessed. Remember Jesus said in John chapter 13 when he talked about washing one another's feet, he said, you will be blessed if you do these things. Jesus said the blessing was for those who are seeking to bless others. And what a wonderful thing when we can tend to have that mentality. Amen? Let's stand for a